please have a seat. All right, so I have the privilege of sharing God's word with us today. And, you know, for those who have uh, kids who are in high school and, uh, you know, for all of us who have been in high school, you know, we know that in high school there's only one thing that's important, right? There's only one thing that's important. And it's not your GPA, you know, it's not how many honors classes you have or it's not about any of that stuff, right? It's about one thing. It's about how popular you are. That's all that matters, right? All you want is for someone around you to be like, man, you're cool. And you're like, I succeeded in high school. My life has been fulfilled, right? That's all you want. You just want to be popular. And, uh, you know, the way you get it is, you know, you join the football team. uh, You join the basketball team. I'll tell you one thing that you don't do. You don't join the tennis team, right? Right, James? We're part of the tennis team. You don't join the tennis team if you want to be cool, all right? Now, when you're on the tennis team, you just, you get shafted. You don't get what you deserve, right? You get the short end of the stick all the time. You know, especially me coming from Diamond Bar High School, you know, we are the mighty Brahmas. You know, we, we were purple and gold. It's like the Lakers, but not like the Lakers. They look really ugly. But imagine, we were so dominant that from the start of Diamond Bar High School, when it began in 1982, we had never lost a league game since my se- until my senior season. But un- up until that, we were undefeated. We had never lost a regular season game, a league game. And so we were the talk of the town, right? In, in Diamond High School, when you think about greatness, you think about us. We're like the Lakers, right? And, you know, we're so great. But at the same time, the cheerleaders, they would always give gifts to, you know, the football players and the basketball players. And I don't even know if they knew we existed, right? I, they never gave us anything, right? They never wrote those little signs that say, like, go team, go tennis team. For, but they did that for the football team and the basketball and all that stuff. You know, no one ever uh, asked us to wear Letterman jackets, right? Even though we were, you know, the, the winningest team at school. Anyhow, one of the things that I remember specifically is that, you know, every quarter they have rallies, you know, sports rallies. So in the fall, it's for the football team and the fall sports, spring or uh, winter and the spring. So we, we were part of the spring quarter. And I remember for the football team, they had invited every player to come out and they called them by name and their number. And they all were like, yeah, you know, and they cheered for them and they were in the middle of the auditorium and it was just pure glory and adoration, right, and admiration. And I was like, man, I wonder what they're going to do for us, right, and the tennis team, you know, the team that really defines Diamond Bar High School. What are they going to do for us? So we, we get there by spring, and I'm anticipating what I'm going to do. And, you know, I'm sitting in the bleachers. I, that should have already triggered my mind. Right? Why am I sitting in the bleachers at the rally? I, someone would have told me to go up. But anyhow, and I'm, thinking, I'm sitting in the bleachers and thinking, Okay, when they call my name, how am I going to navigate my way across and come down in the seats because everyone's crowding me, you know? And, you know, I was, I was a senior at the time. I was probably one of two seniors. I like to call myself the captain. I don't know if I was, but I was like, what, what would I say, you know, if they gave me the mic and what, what would I say to the people and just like, thank you or whatever it is. So that, all that stuff's going through my mind and the rally's happening. The baseball team comes up and they're getting all their adoration and, you know, Cheerleaders are giving them all the stuff, and I'm like, all right, we're next, we're next, right? And all the sports teams come up, 
And they didn't call our name. And I'm like, okay, save the best for last. And finally, at the end, I still remember, they say, oh, oh yeah, the tennis team. Uh, the tennis team, if you guys could just stand up in place where you guys are at. And let's all give them a hand. And everyone's giving them a hand. I didn't stand up. I was so disturbed and appalled. And I was like, what? This is the type of recognition that you give your tennis team? And I was so annoyed. Jonathan, we were on the same team, actually. I don't know if you remember that. But I was so exasperated. I was like, I can't believe they treated us like that. So I didn't even want to stand. Now, I share this silly story because, you know, it, as I was going through this passage, the passage is about giving God what he is due, giving God the glory that he is due. And it really challenged me to think even in my own life. You know, I was so annoyed and frustrated by that whole situation. But in my life, do I give God the glory that he is due? Do I give God the honor and the recognition that he is due? And that really uh, convicted me and challenged me this past week. Because when we first start off, what we see in this passage is that David, King David, as he writes this psalm, he's like, God is worthy of everything. He is worthy of all things. And so we need to ascribe to him the glory that he is due. Follow with me in Psalm 29, verse 1 through 2. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor. Of holiness. It says to give him what he is due. And he, and David's point is going to be that he is worthy of everything. He is worthy of so much. And he starts off by saying that he is worthy in the heavenly places. That even amongst the heavenly beings, in the heavenly places above us, that he is worthy of all recognition, of all glory, and all worship. The heavenly places is where the most esteemed, you know, it's his peers. Right? The people around the heavenly angels, the people that are above humans. These people, David is saying, have to worship the Lord because that's how worthy he is. You know, it's kind of like, you know, if you were a Harvard PhD in math, right, applied math or whatever it is. And you're really great at solving math problems and you know, you don't get any praise if, you're, if you solve a math problem faster than a second grader, right? It's not like, oh my gosh, he solved the problem faster than that second grader. Let's give him a, you know, it's not like that. But if he were, were compared with his peers, his equals, so someone that got a PhD from Yale or Princeton or UCLA, right? All of those equal plane, right? If, <laughs> if he solves the question faster than them, then it's like, wow. Amongst his peers, even he deserves worship and praise and admiration above them. That means something. And so, the, and so David, his first point is, even above humans, right? Humans are just humans, but in the heavenly places, in the heavenly uh, places with the heavenly beings, he is worthy of all worship. There's no one like him. That's what it means when he says to ascribe him, uh, to worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. To be holy is to mean that there is no one like him. To be set apart. He says, worship him in a way that you don't worship anyone or anything else. It's specifically reserved for the Lord. Now, who are God's peers, right? You think about the heavenly places and you're like, wow, who, 
who could even cons be considered an equal, a, a peer of the Lord? Well, David, when he's talking about these heavenly beings, uh, it's interesting because it's literally translated as sons of God. And what he's actually referring to is he's referring to these foreign deities. Now, if you remember, uh, the Israelites, they came out of Egypt, and they were heavily influenced by a lot of the Egyptian gods, or the pantheon of gods, uh, the sun god, and uh, the, the god of locusts, or whatever it is. And they, they were influenced by these gods, and they, they, they had this idea that, man, these gods are really powerful. Fast forward as they go into the desert, and as they finally make it to the promised land, they're uh, in the land of the Canaanites. And as you know, the Canaanites themselves had a plethora of gods. And in all of those, if you guys remember, uh, Baal is a familiar god that the Israelites constantly struggled with in worshiping. But in all these gods, David is reminding the Israelites that he is, that God is above all these gods, all the foreign gods that you think are worthy of worship. God alone, Jehovah, is worthy of all worship. Now, for us, as we hear this, we think, you know, in the 21st century, yeah, of course, you know, there's no idols, you know, things made out of wood and plastic, whatever, they're not real gods. You know, there's only one true God. We all believe that. But I think if I can give you a little bit of context, I, I think it'll help us understand and relate to the Israelites a little bit more and even see ourselves in the Israelites a little bit. See, the Israelites, when they worshipped these idols, uh, they weren't just worshipping these figurines just for the sake of worshipping the figurines. It was actually what they thought these idols and these gods represented. And it was more about what they can receive from these gods. So, for example, if they're worshipping the god they're worshiping a God so that they can receive protection, so that they can receive good crops, so that they can find a loved one of their lives, so that they could have financial security. In all these things, they're worshiping these gods so that they can receive these things. I think that helps us to understand that a little bit, right? I mean, we don't worship pieces of wood or, or plastic or gold or whatever it is, but... We do glory in, in, in these things oftentimes where we seek out security, love, satisfaction, uh, protection, our self-worth in things of this world, things that are not of God. One simple example is just money, right? Money is a huge thing. It's an instrument that can be used for good, but oftentimes the love of money causes people to fall away and fall in sin. You know, people search for money to find a sense of worth, to find a sense of status, to find a sense of security, to find a sense of uh, material wealth and what they feel like it could bring for them. So do you guys see that? It's not, we're not worshiping idols and made of plastic or wood or gold. But just like the Israelites, are we glorying in things that we're trying to receive security, protection, love, relationships, whatever it may be. And God here is declaring above all gods that he is above all of this, that he is a sole provider, 
that he is the protector, that he is uh, the giver of all satisfaction. He is putting himself above all heavenly beings, saying, I am the one that's going to provide you all of these things that you desire. So the first thing that David says is he is worthy of worship because he is above all gods, above all idols, above all everything. He is worthy of worship. Secondly, from heaven, he comes down to creation. And he says God is worthy over all creation. If we look at verse 3 through 9, I'm not going to read all of it with you guys, but in these short passages, David mentions the voice of the Lord seven times. And it's a mark of, the fact that it's written seven times is a mark of completion. It's a holy number. It's, uh, the idea is it's repetitive so that it's something that's supposed to be emphasized. And what he does is he uses the voice of the Lord in comparison to a thunderstorm. And he uses the voice of the Lord and it devastates and destroys everything that's in its way to show how powerful uh, the voice of the Lord is, to show how powerful the Lord is. And he goes through this, and we're going to read this together. But what I want us to see is that, you know, this, this passage is so masterfully crafted. Uh, what we see is that from the sights and the sounds and the, and the feelings, you're going, to, you're going to experience the storm around you as he describes it, right? So in verse 5, he says, The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. So it's this storm, right? The storm is coming, and he says it breaks the cedars of Lebanon. You're, you're experiencing the power that these cedars, these trees, they were known to be the most sturdy, unbreakable, uh, the, the, the wood that people would use to build their temples. In fact, King Solomon had them imported to build the temples in Jerusalem. And these are the, we can liken it to like the sequoia trees in in Yosemite and in this area. But he says, the word of the Lord, the, the voice of the Lord snaps them like a twig, breaks the cedars of Lebanon. Shows the power of the Lord. As we go down in verse 6, he says, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a young wild ox. He's talking about the thunder and the sound that comes from it. It reverberates and it, and it uh, scares these animals, right? It scares them to the point where even Lebanon, this huge, majestic tree, it skips like a calf. And Syrian, which is Mount Hermon, which is known uh, to be maybe today's equivalent, we can understand it as Mount Everest, this majestic, sturdy, solid mountain, the largest mountain in their mind, it skips like a young, wild ox. And you can imagine just that descriptive imagery of, of an animal that is afraid because of that sound, the thunder that comes. And so you experience the power, you experience the sound, and then you experience the sights. Verse 7, it says, The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice shakes the wilderness of Kadesh in the Sinai. So David specifically shows and chooses these geogra geographical locations to let people experience this storm that's happening. To let them understand that the, that the voice of the Lord, that the Lord himself is above all creation, that he himself is more powerful, that he himself is more majestic, that he himself is more uh, awe-inspiring than anything in creation. 
You know, why do people today, why do we, why do we take days off to go on vacation? Why do we go and spend money and go to the Grand Canyon and go visit Yellowstone and Yosemite and go to visit all these natural historical sites? Because there's something about them, their grandeur and their majesty and their power that helps us to see that we're small, right? And the nature and creation is so big. And it's amazing to be some, a part of something that's outside of us that's so large and so expansive. And yet, God says in this that he is above all that, that he is more powerful, that he is more majestic, and God is establishing himself first in the heavenly places that he is above all heavenly beings, all heavenly places. And then he comes to creation. He says, I am above all creation. Right? So I want to see this picture with you guys. Right? David paints this picture. And he comes to this, now this final point, this culmination. But he starts off really high in the heavenly places. He comes down to creation. He says, I'm, God is above the heavenly places. God is above creation. And now... What we see is he starts to move south from the geographical location that he's at, right? So he starts off in verse 4. He says that they're in the waters, right? Uh, or verse 3, sorry. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. So he's talking about the storm that's starting. It's starting in the, in the waters. It heads over to, in verse 4, the cedars of Lebanon. In verse 5, right? Verse 5. The cedars of Lebanon, which is north. If you look at the map of Israel, it's in the northern part of the map. It starts off there, and then the storm moves to Syrian, which is Mount, uh, Mount Hermon, which is verse 6. And then as it goes down, it moves to the wilderness of Kadesh, the desert. And so in this, in this passage, you see this image that's being built up. It starts off in heaven, goes to the ocean, heads up north from Lebanon to, to the uh, mountain, Mount Her Hermon, and then it goes to the wilderness of Kadesh. And right in the middle of that, as it goes down, it curves in. Right in the middle of that is Jerusalem. And Jerusalem is now encompassed, right, in this entire storm, right? It, the storm has gone around them, and now they've experienced the entire storm. And remember, uh, they, they've seen the, the, the lightning. They've experienced the power of the Lord. They've uh, seen their, the oxen and the young calf jumping up and down because they've seen They've heard the thunder of the Lord. And so they are completely consumed by this storm now. And this is the one thing that they say. Verse 9. And in his temple, all cry glory. That's the, that's the one word. That's the only thing that they could say. Glory. That God is worthy of all glory. Now, God is worthy of worship in the heavenly places. God is worthy of worship in the creation. And this is the last part, that God is worthy of worship, of glory in my life and in your life, in our life, in the church's life. God is worthy of glory. Verse 29, or chapter 29, verse 10, it says, The Lord sits enthroned over the flood, the Lord sits enthroned as king forever. That the Lord is our king. And basically, you know, if you're the king, you, you receive all glory, honor, and power regardless if you're a good king or a bad king, right? 
if, if I'm the king and I'm walking by and you don't, uh, you know, kneel down before me or acknowledge me, worship me, worship me in any way, I can get you uh, in prison, right? I could, put, I, I could have you put to death. The king is worthy of glory and honor because of who he is. It's just inherent in him. He is the king and he has authority and power and glory over everyone. Now, the sermon, we could end it at that. We could say God is worthy of worship in heaven. God is worthy of worship in creation. God is worthy of worship in our lives. So give God the worship. Give God the glory. Amen. See you guys later. We could end it like that. And it would be perfectly true. But what we see here uh, is something amazing. What we see here uh, is that God, although he himself is worthy of all glory, all honor and all power, that he humbles himself, that he gives of himself, that he lowers himself beneath us. He serves us. And he gives his life for us. There's a passage that I wanted to share that I think perfectly captures this in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5 through 11, it says, Have this mind among you yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You guys see that? God could have just said, hey, I demand glory. I demand worship. And if you don't give it to him, be off with you. You're going to be judged. You're going to go to eternal damnation. That's it. But what we see is, this God who is deserving of all worship in the heavenly places, in creation, and even in our own lives, he humbles himself. He purposely lowers himself beneath us. He comes in the form of an infant, a child, a helpless baby. He lives in this world amongst us. He walks with us. He obeys God to the point of death, even death on a cross. He's humiliated by man, and yet he humbles himself. He has the obedience to humble himself even to the point of death. And the Psalm passage, or the Philippians passage says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place because of his obedience, because of what he's done for us. And he says, and now every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And this is the part I like. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, wherever you are, God is worthy of worship. And he says, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Everyone will give glory to God the Father because of what he's done here. And so, 
God is worthy of worship. God is worthy of glory, not just because he is in the heavenly places, he deserves it all because he's in creation, because he's the king, but because of what he's done for us as he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. My prayer for us is that we would give God the glory and the worship that he is due. And that really requires for us to remove ourselves out of the center. Right? One thing I was thinking about uh, this past couple weeks and uh, things I've been listening to is, you know, all of us here, we think that we're the main character in our story. And, you know, that we are the hero of the story. But that is not the case, right? We are a part of a bigger story of what God has got, of what God is doing. And he's called us to participate in that story. And so it's important that if we want to give God the glory, we need to remove ourselves from the position of glory where everything goes back to us and how it affects us and how everything is good for us or bad for us, but that we would willingly give up of ourselves to give God the glory and to serve him. That's my prayer for us. Colossians 3.17, it says, Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all glory, all honor, and all praise. Lord, that even if we were here a couple thousand years singing your praise, God, that you would be the glory.